Well, if you will, open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. Again, as a helpful reminder, if you're having a hard time finding Zechariah in your Bibles, it's easier probably to go to the Gospel of Matthew uh, and flip backwards into the Old Testament, Malachi, Zechariah. And we're here in Zechariah chapter 5 where we are seeing two visions taking place in the midst of this long night with the prophet. We're reminded, aren't we, that that Zechariah has been called to be the prophet of the Lord as the people of God have returned to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem. But remember, this isn't the kingdom of Judah in which they were exiled from. This is just a little province of the empire of Medo-Persia. And all that lays in Jerusalem is ruins. Yes, there's a foundation that has been built for this new temple, but the people are weary, the people are tired, and just recently, as Zechariah began his ministry, he was preparing them to restart their labors on rebuilding the temple and the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so, here we are in the midst of this lengthy night where Zechariah has eight visions, one after the other, trying to help the people of God, trying to encourage the people of God for these difficult and long days in which they are facing. We've seen messages of encouragement and and reassurance through the prophet Zechariah. We've seen visions where God has summoned His people to to press on, to, to persevere in the great work of rebuilding this city and rebuilding this temple. But as we come to chapter 5, we see the Lord giving the people through the prophet Zechariah a vision for further holiness, for further sanctification. That they need the work of the Lord in their hearts all the more as they continue about this labor in which God has called them. And so with that in mind, let us read chapter 5 in its entirety. Again, it's going to be two visions, one of a flying scroll and then one of a woman in a basket. And so starting at verse 1, reading all the way through verse 11. Hear now the word of God, people of God. It says, again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he, talking about the angel, said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. And then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. And then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket 
And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they going to take the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, here in chapter 5, we have the 6th and the 7th vision in the sequence of these eight visions in which the prophet Zechariah is experiencing here in the midst of this long night. And one of the things that we kind of have to we kind of have to get our mind around as we come to this sixth and seventh vision is we have to put our put ourselves in the in the place of Zechariah. We might say in the shoes of Zechariah. And so put yourself using your sanctified imagination in the shoes of Zechariah, he has received visions of assurance. He has seen visions that have preached to him the beauties of the gospel. He, he has seen visions to, to help the people of God persevere and to keep on laboring for the work of the Lord, their Lord, as they've returned from the wickedness of the kingdom of Medo-Persia, of originally Babylon, and they have been encouraged, haven't they, to know that the promises that have been declared before they were even led into captivity 70 years ago would now come to pass again, all the while prepping us for even a better temple, a better Zechariah, a better Joshua, A better king in King Jesus who will prepare a place for us for eternity. And so you might almost expect for the good news to keep on rolling, right? And yet, in the shoes of Zechariah, bad news is is hard to deal with. We 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 don't want, you know, we we always like to say something like. Do you want the bad news or the good news first? You can always tell what kind of person you're talking to depending on what they, what they pick, right? Do they want the bad news and then be encouraged by the good news? Or do they want the good news to kind of bring them up a little bit so that they won't be knocked down just as far by the bad news? Well, it seems as if this is how the Lord is revealing Himself to Zechariah. He has built Zechariah up. Persevere. Be reassured of my presence. I am your God. You are my people. And then he drops the hard sayings upon the prophet with this sixth vision, the vision of the flying scroll. And and you know, our sinful inclination begins to think, and I'm sure this is what Zechariah thinks, prophet of the Lord, yes, but a man nonetheless. God, do you really have to bring the bad news? Can't you just give us a break? I just got the people working again. I just got them hopeful again. I've I've just got them on their way. We're in a good place. Why would you now begin to search the people of Jerusalem yet again for sin? 
You just called them to repentance. And they have repented of their ways. And they are working. They are not idle. They're not idolaters like their forefathers. They are pursuing obedience. Why must you now come and talk about sin yet again? And what, what, this, what this set of visions actually teaches us is that the rooting out of sin by God's Word and by God's Spirit is always good for us and our spiritual welfare. I mean, if, if you've been suffering with sin, I don't know how many of you have ever really struggled with a besetting sin. And when I say a besetting sin, I mean a sin that you hate, but you cannot shake. If you've ever dealt with a besetting sin, and finally you have, you have seemingly brought about some victory in God's grace, and all of a sudden, God and His Word, by His Spirit, reveals to you another sin. The sinful inclination is, can't you just let me have this moment? And yet, the Lord says, no, it's good for me to continue rooting out your sin. It's for your spiritual welfare that I continue to root out your sin. It's actually my loving commitment to you that I pursue you with grace and mercy so that you can continue to kill sin. Because what often happens when we begin to have any sort of victory over our sins? We grow in our idleness. We, we take the victory in which we have experienced and, you, and we say in our sinful inclinations, yes and amen, Lord, thank You for this victory in which You have given me and we sit back and we become sluggish in our pursuit to kill sin within us. But the Puritan John Owen so famously put it, if we're not always killing sin, sin will always be killing us. And so in a pursuit of the people of God's spiritual welfare, God has found pleasure, yes, in His people not being idolaters like their forefathers but they need continued sin rooted out within their lives so that they might grow in obedience, so that they might grow in Christ-likeness. One of the things that we have to understand about sin is that in and of ourselves, in our sinful inclination, our flesh does not sleep. It does not stop. It's always festering. And the accuser, Satan himself, is always pestering us. He's always scoping us out, trying to find a weak spot within us or within our family or within our church so that he might take away our joy of salvation. And so what we're seeing here in this sixth and seventh vision is this rooting out of sin, a calling to action, if you will, but also a reminder of how the Gospel operates when we flee to Christ for mercy and for grace. And so here we are that as we see this flying scroll and we look at verses 1-4, through four, Zechariah knows exactly what's about to happen when he sees this scroll. He knows exactly what is about to be declared as he sees this scroll. Look at how big it is. Its length is 20 cubits. And its width is 10 cubits. So we're, we're talking about a 30-foot a long and a 15-foot wide scroll 
that is now in Zechariah's vision. And you can imagine that Zechariah immediately goes to the prophecies of the Old Testament which have been handed down to him by his forefathers. And he thinks of other visions. Maybe visions like Ezekiel had in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 where the vision of the scroll bearing words of lament, mourning, and judgment is seen by the prophet. And so you can almost imagine yourself, right, we're still in the shoes, we're still standing with Zechariah, and he sees this huge scroll. You can't miss it, right? He sees this huge scroll, and he goes, this is not going to be good. And what does the scroll begin to say? Well, if you look at verse 3, the angel's explanation actually gives us a lot of information here with what this scroll says and actually what the sins of the people are that needs to be rooted out. In verse 3, the angel says, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. Now, curse is actually a very important part of this vision because curse is actually a technical term in the Hebrew Scripture that saved only to speak about how the sins against the covenant that God has struck with His people are broken. And so you you think about something like the, the Ten Commandments and the curse of covenant breaking. The curse of disobeying the Ten Commandments. You know, the Lord doesn't call them little white lies. The Lord doesn't call them big or big or little sins. No, He just simply calls them infractions or cosmic treason against the king and what he has commanded for us to do. And he says, for those who break the covenant of God, for those who will not keep my covenant, there is a curse for them. Deuteronomy 29.20 says, the curses written in the book will be upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. It, It carries significant spiritual eternal even implications and so what we have here is as this curse that goes out over the face of the whole land is seen the sins in which the people of God are committing are now explained again there in verse 3 it says that there's people who are stealing and then there are people who are Swearing falsely. And what we have before us are infractions, cosmic treasons against God's commandments in the breaking of the eighth and the third commandments. The eighth commandment, thou shall not steal. And then the third commandment, thou shall not take the Lord, the name your God, in vain. You shall not swear falsely upon his name. And what's being represented here, of course, is our duty to man, the second half of the, the Ten Commandments, five through ten, and our duty to God. And so if if the summary of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, they are guilty of both things. They are guilty of both sides of the commandment of the commandment tablets, you might say. They have sinned against their neighbor and they have sinned against their God. And you say, well, well, at least they're not idolaters anymore. 
At least they're not worshiping the false gods of the pagan nations around them. Well, at least they're not, at least they're not, at least they're not, you know, that, that's, that's the sinful inclination, isn't it? I wrestle with that as I read it. Lord, they've already repented once, and they're not guilty of the idolatry that their forefathers were guilty of that led them into captivity in Babylon. Can't you just let these two little things slide on by? And the Lord is saying, no, I'm rooting out even the smallest of details within the sinful inclinations of my people. I'm digging down deep within their hearts. But but don't you understand that what's before us here and, and the way that we wrestle with this is that all sins are equally damnable to to God. All sins deserve death. And, and, And the reason in which God is now revealing these things to to His people here in our text in the first four verses is so that they might understand that there is a curse that comes with not turning from their sin and to Christ. You see it there in verse 4, don't you? He actually says, as one commentator says, there's no happiness at the expense of holiness. There's no happiness at the expense of holiness. If you you look at verse 4, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. You can put it differently, maybe in better terms that we would understand. You can run, but you can't hide, is essentially what he's saying. The sinners who swear deceitfully, the sinners who are stealing unjustly, making gains unjustly, I know where they are. And the curse, if they do not turn from their sins and towards me, if they do not repent, the curse will find its way into their house. And actually what they desire, I'll remove from them. Isn't that how judgment of sin actually works? That the sins in which we give into, the sins in which we we think will give us instant gratification or instant pleasure, the sins in which we think will be easier to manage, and therefore we do them, don't they always work against the very thing that we thought they would do for us? might not be immediate. But sin always finds us out and sin always brings destruction. It, it always brings death. And so there is no happiness at expense of holiness to use the words of those commentators. The Lord deals with holiness. The word, Lord works in, in holiness. And so He tells us that there has to be a repentance of sin Specifically, this repentance of the one who swears falsely and the one who gains unjustly or the one who steals. And so there's this message of judgment that's come before Zechariah in this vision of the flying scroll. But then, in verse 5, the angel tells Zechariah to look. Actually, he says, lift your eyes. It's interesting to me because... What happens when when we begin to have sin rooted out within our hearts? I don't know if you're anything like me, but automatically, shame. 
automatically despair. Automatically, a wretched man that I am, and your head hangs down. And you can feel it in Zechariah. He's mourning, he's lamenting, he's ashamed of the sins of the people there in Jerusalem, and his head is hung down. And now the angel says, lift up your eyes, because I'm going to give you an assurance of salvation if you will return to the Lord. Isn't that exactly the way that, that our liturgy works out when we have a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon? We bow our heads before the Lord, confessing the sins those things that we have done that we ought to left undone and those things that we've left undone, those things that we ought to do. And we hang our heads and, and, and we confess those sins and then immediately after that confession of sin, either me or Pastor Don, lift up your heads and hear the words of the Scripture as it assures you of your salvation. That's what the angel's doing. The angel's telling you, lift up your head because what I'm about to show you is going to reveal to you the gospel. And so in verses 5 through 8, we have that vision of the woman in a basket. This is a strange vision. Not that the humongous scroll wasn't strange, but you think about what's taking place here. It, it, it's literally an ephah. An ephah. It's a, it's a basket that holds about five gallons of material in the, in the Hebrew world. And so Zechariah sees this basket and, and the angel says, this is the iniquity in all the land and behold, there's a lead cover over this basket and the angel lifts it up and Zechariah peers in and what does he see? He sees this woman sitting in there. And this woman's name is wickedness. Now, you know, I could show you some of the commentators I read this week. You would be amazed at some of the, the, the reasons in which some of these commentators think that, think that this, this wickedness is a woman. John Calvin actually argues that it's a woman because the first person who is tempted by Satan into sin is a woman, Eve. I just think it's simply uh, the Hebrew. It's, it's a, the Hebrew works in male and female capacities and it's a it's a feminine construction i don't think there's anything really supposed to be here other than the basic fact that she's a representation of wickedness and this is the wickedness of of the land and, and Zechariah sees her and, and what's implied here is that the woman wants to get out of the basket the woman's trying to escape the basket she wants to she wants to move about jerusalem she wants to move about the people of God and, and she, wants to, she wants to unhinderedly lead the people into further sin, into, into further wickedness. She, she wants to, to, to move about the land causing turmoil spiritually within the people of God. And yet what the angel does here, look at it in verse 8. He thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. It, there's a struggle going on. I don't know if it's as clear to you in the English, but there's this woman who, in this basket who's, 
trying her hardest to, to get out, to, to lead the nation into sin, to, to move about and cause spiritual chaos in the land. And the angel thrusts her back into the bottom of the barrel. And then thrusts the lead, lid on top of the barrel. And what's being displayed here for Zechariah is, is actually something that we should praise the Lord for each and every day. Because in our sanctification, yes, it's messy. Yes, it's frustrating. It's, you know, it's two step forward and one step back, it seems, constantly, at least in my life. There's a struggle. There's a war. And sometimes we lose that struggle and sometimes we stumble and fall. But when we do, what's being declared to us here with the thrusting of the wicked woman back into the bottom of the basket is that the stumbling and the falling is not as bad as it could be. You know, by the grace of God, you've heard Pastor Don and myself say, by the grace of God, we're not living on the streets. We're not murderers or drug addicts. We're not fornicators or, or, or sexual immorality. You know, we're not delving with sexual immorality. You, you, you know, we can sit and we can say very judgmentally, you know, I would never be a sinner like that, but it's really only by the grace of God that we're not. It's only by the grace of the Lord that we're not just completely immoral people. And that's what the thwarting or the thrusting of the woman and the leaden cover back on the barrel or the basket really is showing us is that the Lord restrains wickedness for His people. By His mercy, He restrains wickedness for His, for His people. He graciously restrains sin within the heart of His people. And so, yes, there's a battle with the flesh. Yes, there's a war that's raging within and without us. And yet, for the people of God, sin has no dominion over us. Jesus has come to thwart the plans, destroy the plans of the devil. And that means that oftentimes we need to be reminded of one of the most overlooked mercies of God in our lives. We're, we're not as wicked as we could be. And the loss or the losing with the struggle, the stumbling and falling that we find ourselves doing is not as bad as it could be you know, we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our, our prone to wandering could be a lot worse than it actually is. Because sin does not have free reign. Wickedness does not have free reign. She's kept in this bucket. She's kept in this basket. It's much like Jesus' vision of the strong man, isn't it? That, that the Son of Man moves freely about the strong man's house because the strong man is what? Bound. He's bound. So Jesus Christ moves freely amongst the nations, taking and saving whomever He desires. That's the picture here. That's the picture here that the Sovereign Lord restrains wickedness and His malice and, and He reigns in our hearts. But that's not all the Gospel teaches, is it? Because in verses 9-11, through 11, we have something even greater. Yes, we need to thank our 
our Lord for restraining evil within our lives, for, for Him by His Spirit prevailing within our hearts. But if you look at verses 9-11, through 11, here, sin is not only restrained, wickedness is not only restrained, but it's actually carried away. Now, if you thought the woman in a basket was weird, think about these two women that look like storks. This is the strangest vision Zechariah's seen so far, I believe. But nonetheless, there are these two women, and they must be beautiful compared to the woman named Wickedness. But there's these two women who have wings like a stork, and the wind was in their wings. Now, if you're a good Old Testament reader, you know what Zechariah's seeing. It's not just wind blowing, like blowing through the trees. No, this is the Holy Spirit moving these women along, carrying the, the woman named wickedness away. So the Holy Spirit is moving the basket along. And He is removing or, or carrying the sins of the people away. You, you notice, remember, or you remember, don't you? That as, as Zechariah sees the basket, he says, this is their iniquity. In all the land, this is their sin. I have restrained it, and now I'm carrying it away. Casting it as far as the east is from the west. Carrying it between earth and heaven, it says in verse 9. And, and, and in verse 10, Zechariah says, he knows what's going on, but he doesn't know where, he's, where, where in the world this basket's being taken. What are they, or where are they taking the basket? And it says here, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. Now again, a good Old Testament reader would know exactly what's being referenced here. The land of Shinar is the place in which the Tower of Babel was built. The Tower of Babel was the very picture of of sin and iniquity and man's desire to rule over himself. The Tower of Babel then turns into the empire of Babylon, showing us the dominion of the world as it tries to stand against the kingdom of God. And then what does Nebuchadnezzar, the, the emperor of Babylon, what does his vision proclaim? That the empire of the world has no chance in its attempts to thwart the kingdom of Christ. And so all of this is coming full circle for us in the Old Testament. And the sin, the wickedness is being carried, essentially what the vision is saying, is back to the Tower of Babel. Back to Babylon. And there, when it's time, it says in verse 11, the basket will be set down. What is being proclaimed there in verses 10 and 11? Well, if, if 5 through 9 is the grace and the mercy of the Lord to restrain evil and to carry it away on behalf of His people, then surely 10 and 11 is telling us the full gospel story where yes, God's people are met with grace and mercy, but those who refuse to repent those who refuse to repent, they will be given over to their sins. They will have wickedness on clear display before them. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1. 
Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1 very forcefully, really. He says, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. They've made their choice, Paul's saying. And God gives them up to their wickedness. What's being declared here in these visions is there is sin in the camp. There is sin amongst the people of God. If you will repent, there is grace and mercy to be, to be had. There is grace and mercy to be experienced. God will rescue His people from their sin. And yet at the same time, God will hand over the rebel world. He will hand over their sins to them. God will give them up, it says, to dishonorable passions and to their displaced minds. And so there's a gracious warning here, isn't it? There's an offer being made and there, there's a demand for a choice. Will we flee to Christ and receive mercy and grace? Will we enjoy the gifts of the Gospel which says that evil will be restrained and our sins will be carried away? Or will we wait until the day of judgment when the house in the land of Shinar is ready and the basket is placed upon its base? Will we be given over to our debased minds and our dishonorable passions? You know, Revelation, John sees in Revelation Jesus Christ standing and knocking. And Robert Murray McShane says, God always offers the last knock. Well, here it is. God is offering the knock upon the door. And, and the choice is really for us to flee to Christ for mercy or to turn our backs to Christ and, and be handed over to the sins that we desire and the sins that we love. And so really our prayer should be that the Lord would root out sin. That the Lord would till up our hard hearts and reveal to us the sin. That the Lord would test us and try us. Search the depths of our souls and show to us those things in which we need to repent of so that we can go to Him for the precious pardon that He gives to us in Christ. Knowing that one day the free offer of the Gospel will be no more. And on that day that the free offer of the Gospel is no more, the Lord will give us up. Give all those who refuse to turn away from our wickedness. He will give us up to our dishonorable passions. And so, beloved, will you see clearly this night the gracious call and would you respond to it? I pray you wouldn't harden your hearts. Let's pray to that end together. Father in heaven, as we see the weightiness of sin here in the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 5, we pray, Lord, that we would see the weightiness of our own sin. That we would recognize it as it is, cosmic treason, treason against a holy God. And would we flee to Christ for mercy and for grace? It's not here within our text. Zechariah doesn't see it, but the, but the place in which sin is carried away is at the cross of Calvary. And so may we flee to the cross where the blood of 
The Son of God was shed for the remission of sin. And may we stand assured that if we cling to the cross of Calvary and the Christ who was crucified there, that victory is ours, says the Lord. That our sin has no dominion over us. Death has no power or sting over us. And we can live in the assurance of our salvation with our eyes up towards Thee. But Lord, we do pray that we would not harden our hearts. That we would not seek to be like those building the Tower of Babel. Desiring to be our own God and going about our own way. For we know, Lord, the the surety of the promises of God that you, that you will rightly, justly, and fairly give them up to their worldly passions. And so, Lord, we pray that that would not be us. We pray that on the day of judgment we can stand confident in Christ Jesus and not ashamed and in fear of the judgment that will come. We pray, Lord, that we would come to you each and every day in repentance, being assured of our salvation asking that You would restrain wickedness within our own hearts so that we might be molded and made to look, like, look more like our Savior Christ, Jesus. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.